It is so good to see you guys again. To, I know I've been gone for a couple of weeks. It seems like an eternity when I'm not here with you guys. I mean, I was here last week, but I, was, I got to sit with my wife last week, which never gets to happen. Um, the funny thing is we haven't driven to church together in about, oh gosh, 30 years, which is great because we don't argue on the way to church like most of you guys do. <laughs> Right, <laughs> so, so we're 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 I'm back at the pulpit. We're back in the Book of Acts again. I've missed both being at the pulpit and being uh, in the Book of Acts. But I got to tell you, it was good for me and my wife to to be away. I don't know if most of you guys know. A couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, my my brother-in-law passed away, Blanca's brother, and uh, so she had been busy down the hill a lot. And, uh, you know, coming, coming to church, you know, when, when you got to explain everything, it was kind of good right after the, the memorial service. Me and my, my wife, we headed out to Visalia to my daughter's house and just kind of kicked it there for a little bit and just kind of got away, uh, just kind of breathe a little bit. And then last week, Pastor Jacob um, was able to, to share. He had already asked me if he can hijack Sunday morning when, um, when we have a fifth Sunday. And so that was already planned for for a couple months, uh, and so we had the, the the youth up here, and and you know the youth guy. And what I what I love about our fellowship is that it doesn't matter who stands behind the pulpit, or it shouldn't matter, because it's not about the the messenger who's behind the pulpit. It's about the message. And I could guarantee you, whoever stands behind this pulpit on a Sunday morning or a Thursday night is going to give you the word of God. And so it doesn't matter who the messenger is. It should not matter in our lives. And so we should be excited because whenever I'm not here, one of our pastors will be behind the pulpit. And I love the fact that they, they're going through a book. They're, they're in 2 Corinthians whenever they get to teach, whenever somebody else gets to teach here, even though we're in Acts, they get to teach out of 2 Corinthians. And if you miss Pastor Gary and Pastor Jacob two weeks ago and last week, you got to go online and listen to them. They're powerful messages that, that were given from the pulpit. And so... Again, it's not about the messenger, it's about the message that God gives us to share with you. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7 this morning, and I will attempt to do something that I rarely attempt to do. Yes, I know you're already thinking, no way. We're going to cover the whole chapter. Now here's the crazy part about it. The crazy thing is, it is the longest chapter in the book of Acts. And you're going, Pastor Zeke, why would you do something like that to us? I don't know, <laughs> except that that's what I'm going to do. And part of the reasoning behind it is as you read through this portion of Scripture, as I was studying it and looking at it going, my goodness, there's no break in there. It is a continual message because what we have in chapter 7 is the longest address and or message that is shared. You could call it a sermon, but it's not quite a sermon. It's just the message that is being shared in the book of Acts. And so it just kind of flows. And so call me crazy, but I'm going to try to do it. But thank you. 
But what, I, what has impressed me as I've been studying through this, and I've studied it before and I've taught it before, but what has impressed me about this whole message and or address is that it is not given by one of the apostles. We've saw, we have seen that already through the apostle Peter, who's given two, two sermons. Now, this one is not given by any of these guys, but it's given by a guy who was called out, as we saw in chapter 6, to be serving tables, to wait on tables. It's just a guy who, who, who waited on tables. That's what he was called to do. And unbeknownst to him, because he was already doing a lot of the work, he was out doing stuff and serving tables and doing all that he possibly could do. And if you remember from our last study a few weeks back, that Stephen is his name. Stephen was accused by the synagogue of the freedmen of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God, against the holy place that is the temple and against the law. In addition to that, he is also accused, they accused him of saying that Jesus would destroy this temple, both the temple and the customs of, of Moses. Now, I have no doubt that Stephen probably shared all of those things because they were all true. Jesus did say those things, that he would destroy the temple, but he spoke about his body, he would raise it up, that happened. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. And, and, and he talked about coming and fulfilling the law, doing away with the law in that sense, but not totally thrashing it, right? And so I, I have no doubt that Jesus spoke these things and Stephen shared all of these things to them in his time of sharing, sharing God with them. And so I have no doubt that, that he did those things. But they took it out of context. And they're saying that he has spoke, spoken some blasphemous words against all of these things. So because they could not resist the wisdom that Stephen had and the spirit behind that, as we, we looked at last week, they seized him, it says, and they brought him before the council. And we've seen the council several times. The council being made up of 71 religious leaders from different sects and, and, and bringing them together, being called the Sanhedrin. And these guys are the highest religious court there is it, it would be like going somehow to the supreme court or maybe standing in front of a, a congressional hearing and you have all these people sitting and and they're just focusing and laser beaming on that one person that's what it kind of the scene looks like if you can picture that in your mind with 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 what's going on here and so again he's being accused of of blasphemous words and the sanhedrin are going to give him a time to rebut. Not so much rebut, but to explain. To kind of talk about, are these things true, as the first verse tells us that that's what they do. And, and another thing that, that impresses me here, as they give him this opportunity to share, again, I don't think he had notes like I have notes. <laughs> I don't think he had the Bible in front of him like I have my Bible in front of me. But this cat stands in front of these people, intimidating people that look down on this guy, and they're asking him, are these things true, these blasphemous things that you're sharing with us? And what impresses me is that this man, who's been called out to serve tables, kind of gives them a history lesson 
on the nation of Israel. Now, they didn't need a history lesson. They knew all about all that. But they were missing certain things that he will point out in our text. He will bring out things that it might go over their head, but some of these things are going to hit them hard, as we will see at the end of the study. If I get there, I'm sure I will. That it will pierce their hearts because of what this guy is saying. Now, Stephen, being a Hellenist, being a Greek-speaking Jew, more than likely has studied all of these things through the Septuagint, which would be the, the, the Old Testament, but written in Greek instead of Hebrew. And so if there's some discrepancies here that he might be saying, it's probably because it was a different version, as sometimes you, you read from the NIV or the and, and, uh, New Living Translation or the King James. There, there might be some discrepancies there. Because some people, if you're a Bible student, you're going to go, Pastor Zeke, you missed some of these things. I'm not going to touch on some of the discrepancies because I got a lot to say. And I got to get into it. And so again, here Stephen is in this court setting, if you will, but he's not so much there to defend himself as we will see. He will defend this new movement that has come about, the church, Christianity. That's what he's going to be defending using familiar situations and people from the OT, from the Old Testament, that these people would, would understand, would remember. And so he's making the case that from here on out, it is not religion as usual. You see, these religious leaders of the day had been putting God in a box for so long. He could only move in this way, God, and that's the only way he can move. And that's what religion does. It puts God in a box, and it says this is the way God moves all the time. He cannot go outside the box. That's what religion says. But what Stephen is making the case about is that God, the God of our fathers, he's, he's basically saying, has never been in a box. And that's the thread kind of that you see throughout this whole thing. Because even though God was working in and with the nation of Israel, a lot of their history had been done outside of Israel. A lot of their history had happened before the law and before the temple. And so I'm sharing all these things, kind of setting you up as I read, because there's not going to be a lot of commentary as I read. Now, I will be taking breaks to give you a break and give me a break, because you know how I read. And it gets, I get tongue-tied, and it's like, if I start sweating up here, man, you know I've messed up bad. So be that as it may, we're going to read these things, and so... So what Stephen was doing was, was kind of sharing with them that, that the Lord, even though he gave them the Old Testament, even though he gave them the temple, even though he gave them the law, God had always been looking ahead, ahead after the law, after the temple to Jesus. All points to Jesus and the working of the Holy Spirit in people's lives whom the religious leaders continued to resist. They resist the Holy Spirit, as we will see towards the end of the study. And so what, I, what I've understood, as, as, as I've just kind of been around for a little bit, is that religion normally focuses and looks backwards and down, basically. Whereas Stephen and Christianity focuses on forward and upward, as we will see him at the end of our service. And so, so here, Stephen... 
He reviews the history of Israel to the Sanhedrin and he brings about all these guys who have contributed, who have made this contribution uh, to the nation of Israel. And all these guys were revered leaders of the nation of Israel because you have Abraham, you got Joseph, you have Moses, you have Joshua, David, and Solomon, whom all these guys looked up to. And, and so the, the very last verse of chapter 6 where, where Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin, it says this, and, they, and, and all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And so I can guarantee you, as Stephen is sharing, and these guys are riveted on this witness that has been brought before them, all they see is a man whose countenance, whose face looks like an angel. Guys, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pierce them bad. It's gonna, they're, they're listening to everything he is saying, as we will see at the, at the end. And so that's, that's what they are, they are staring at. So now understand that all, all that the Lord would do here with Stephen, it, it, it is necessary that we see this, that we understand this, because all that we see here is that what happens from here on out pushes the gospel out of Jerusalem because of what will happen because of that. I, I, I kind of understand that, that Stephen had no clue when he had been called to serve tables, to wait on tables. He had no clue what God was going to do in, in his life. He had no clue that God would use him in such a powerful way that, that because of him, because of what's happening with him in the council, what's happening with him, it, what will happen right at the end of this chapter, will propel the gospel to go out. To, it, it will go out of Jerusalem. It will go into Judea and, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you and I are sitting here today because of what happened in this chapter. Because of Stephen. Because of him being the first martyr and not being afraid. But he stood up. And he, and, and he spoke against the unrighteousness that was going on. And he calls these guys to task. And so, let's get going here. It says then, verse 1 of chapter 7, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and he, uh, and he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him into this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give him for a possession and, and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, that they would, that they would bring them to, into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the... the the nation to whom they, uh, they will be in bondage, I will judge, God uh, said God. And after that, 
they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him a covenant, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot um, Jacob. And Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And so we'll stop right there really quick. I just want to touch on a few little things that as we look at here, that now that he is given the chance to speak, now that he is given the time, and what trips me out is that they're going to let him speak. Nobody's going to interrupt them. Nobody's going to stop this because the Spirit is working in such a powerful way here. That, that again, they're going to let him speak. And he starts off by saying, brethren and fathers. And I, I, have, to, I have to think that, that he is probably in his late 20s, 30s. That he's looking at some of the people that would be his peers that he would call brethren. But and then he also mentions the word fathers in respect to the people, the elders that are sitting on this council. And so you can imagine this young man, Stephen, who is there standing before these people who are pretty intimidating because, again, they are the council. And yet he, 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 he doesn't come off with disrespect, but he calls them brethren, my beloved brethren, basically, people that we're related to, and my fathers and fathers. And he says to them, listen, pay attention. Pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. And again, you can imagine these guys who are sitting there are pompous. You could understand that these guys, man, these guys are probably the same ones who have already put Jesus to death several months earlier, maybe even a year earlier. The timeline is kind of sketchy here, but let's just say within the last six months, they put Jesus to, de to death. They've already threatened the other apostles, put them in prison and say, hey, no more of this Jesus stuff. And yet you have Stephen, this man who is called to serve tables, but also did signs and wonders in the midst of everybody. And that's why he's being called in. That's why people are challenging him. Because he is out there putting himself out there, just kind of being a regular old Joe that serves tables, but shares Jesus with people. And so all of a sudden he has been brought in and they give him this opportunity and he's respectful. And he says, the God of glory. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Again, bringing them all together. Understanding that again, God appeared to Abraham who is the father of the Jews. And what he is already starting to mention by, by what he says here that he appeared to him. He appeared to him in Mesopotamia which would be our modern day Iraq basically. That's where Abraham is from. That's where all of this starts. And he's basically telling them, God didn't speak to him when he was in Jerusalem. He didn't speak to him when he was in, in Israel. He spoke to him in a foreign land. That's where he was from. And understand this, when God called him to come out of Mesopotamia, he says, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And yet we see that he ends up in Haran. And he had told them already, hey, leave everybody behind. You take off and I'm going to show you where to go. And where does he end up? In Haran. So if you're looking at the map, I'll point it towards you. If, if Mesopotamia is here and the promised land is here that he's telling them, he says, hey, I want you to go to the promised land. Where does he go? He goes to Iran, which is up here. And who does he take? His relatives. And, I, and I, again, I have to look at that and go, man, Abraham, God's calling you. God's appearing to you to tell you to go over here, and you don't do it. There's kind of some, some disobedience here in Abraham. 
Because he tells him, hey, I'm going to take you to a land that you don't even know about. I'm going to take you over there. He goes, okay, I'm going to take my, no, you're not taking anybody. Well, I'm going to take my dad. And so God kind of takes his dad out of the picture by killing him, or, or he died. He didn't kill him. But, 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 but what I love, to, and, and these are kind of the little things that, that, that Stephen is sharing with these guys because he's saying even our father Abraham was disobedient. And again, understand, he's speaking to these guys, and a lot of these things that he's going to be saying might be going over their head, but he is hitting them. Because he says, God called him to go over here, but he landed over there until his dad died, and then he brought him. And he brought him to an inheritance, brought him to, to the place where, where he, he was to dwell, and, and he didn't even have children then. And yet God begins to promise him uh, 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 this, this, this whole land is like, I don't even have a kid yet, Lord. I have nothing. And so again, the time that it would take for him to have a child, and yet God says, but you will have this, and it will go into your descendants. And God tells him in verse 6, but even though your, your people are going to be here, I'm going to take them away to another foreign land. And again, you're kind of going, well, wait a minute. They just landed in the promised land, and yet he's promising that they would be taken away. And not just for a couple of years. It would be for 400 years. You know, we, we, we look at 400 years in the Bible and we go, oh yeah, it's no big deal because we're going to move on, right? We just celebrated, what, 243 years of the United States. That's a long time ago. 400 years. That's when Christopher Columbus first came. That's a long time ago. And yet he's telling them, I'm going to take these people away for 400 years. After he's telling them, I'm going to bring them into this land. And again, he's kind of touching these, these bases. He's kind of starting to, to weave this thread through the story that God moved outside of Israel, outside the temple. God was moving. And, and, and he's, he's bringing this in, into effect to remind them of what God was doing in his day. And why he's standing before the Sanhedrin. And so in verse 8 he says, And he gave him the, the covenant of circumcision. Again, this would set them apart from everybody else. He gave them this promise. Now understand, circumcision was before the law. So again, God worked outside the box. He just didn't work within the law. And he just didn't work in the temple. None of this was there yet. The law wouldn't come for some 430 years after at least. And so he's telling them, reminding them, this is what God is doing. Let me give you a little quick history lesson. And I'm sure those guys are sitting there going, hey, buckaroo, you don't tell us about the history of Israel. What, what, who do you think you are that you're schooling us here? But he's telling them things that they maybe hadn't even captured about disobedience, about being outside the land. Because all of these things would hit them hard because of their disobedience, how they were already resisting God and the Holy Spirit because of their religion. They were trying to keep God here. And he's saying, hey, listen, buckaroos, God was already working outside there. God has always been working outside the box. And you guys have, have brought it together here and think that that's the only way that God can move. And so in verse 9, he says, the patriarchs, Becoming envious, sold Joseph to Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his, fam and all his house. Now a famine, a great trouble, and great trouble 
came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they carried, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in tomb in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. And so now, as he continues on with this, he he he's first called Abraham as a witness. Now he's calling Joseph as a witness. And understand what he's telling them here. Joseph, the guy that, that, that was Jacob's favorite son, if you will. If Jacob could have called him my only son, he would have done that because he was his faves, right? And so all of a sudden he says his, his brothers, our patriarchs, they were envious of him. Again, he's using words that, that would say, all you guys have been envious of who Jesus is. And all the works that he has done. And, and so now again, he's kind of looking at them. He says, but Joseph, he was sold from, by his brothers to Egypt. But get this, God was with him. The God that you guys are, 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 are going to kill me over <laughs> because of what I've said, that he's outside the box. You guys are, are he was with him outside of Israel, outside the temple, outside of Jerusalem. He was with him in Egypt, and he delivered him. Again, I could, un- I, could, I could understand what Stephen is doing here, not just telling him, hey, this is what God's doing, but he's probably comforting his own heart at the same time, saying, hey, people were envious of Joseph, but God was with him just like he's with me. And God delivered Joseph just like he will deliver me. Now understand, he will be delivered. I don't want me to spoil it, but he will deliver him through death. And so again, he's sharing these things saying, but God was with them and he gave him favor and he gave him wisdom. He gave him wisdom to Pharaoh and Pharaoh lifted him up and he was second in command to Pharaoh and oversaw the whole land of Egypt and Canaan. And so when, when it was time for a famine and for great trouble, God had already given them understanding and wisdom to protect and, and, and build up the supply. To, so much so that his father would end up coming to him outside from the promised land. And they would end up in Egypt, and yet God was with them there. God was going to use this time in Egypt to build them up as a people. They started off with 70, 75 men. They ended up leaving 400 and some years later with over 2 million people. And yet he didn't take them straight to the promised land because of their disobedience, remember? And yet they would wander for 40 years. God was still with them. And so so he's telling them the first time that the brethren came, they didn't receive Joseph. They didn't understand what he was doing. It wasn't until the second time, and again, we kind of get a picture here of what he's telling them here. You guys have rejected Jesus. 
but you're not going to reject him the second time. His first coming, maybe, because the Bible tells us that he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. But second time around. And so we get a picture of, of him kind of sharing the second time he comes, you will hear him. You will automatically hear him. And so in verse 17, it says, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had swore to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt until another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed the, our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. That this, at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his, house, in his father's house for three months. But when he was uh, uh, set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him, who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them <clears throat> that, as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Why, do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed by, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame, in the, burn, in the fire of a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight as he drew near to observe the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard the groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? Is the one God sent to be ruler and deliver by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He sought, out, he sought them out after he had uh, shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And so now we, we have another 
witness that he brings here, and that is Joseph, or, or Moses. And he spends a lot more time with Moses here, reminding them that, that it, it, there came a time where uh, after 400 and some years that the Pharaoh didn't know the children of Israel like the first Pharaoh knew Joseph. So much so that, that he began to oppress them and treat them treacherously. And again, you understand that he's using words that would speak to them how they're beginning to treat him and the people that are following after God. They've been dealing with these guys, with the apostles, the followers of Jesus, treacherously. And so he again reminds them of what they're doing, that they're oppressing this movement that is, that is doing. And they're almost forgetting the counsel that they had gotten from Gamaliel um, a few 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 weeks earlier of saying just leave them alone don't worry about them if it's of God who can stop it but they're not letting that go they're going after him or going after these guys and now they have Stephen in their in their crosshairs and so now Moses is born Moses who would be the deliverer he was well pleasing to God even as a baby and yet he wasn't anywhere close to Jerusalem or the temple he was in a foreign land he was in Egypt he was born there and yet God would, 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 would be there and ministering to them and protecting them and that instead of him being killed, he was set out and, and Pharaoh's daughter take, takes him in and he learned and he went through the best schools. He did all of that stuff and yet there came a time, 40 years was his age when he realized, I want to go back to my people. I want to see what God's doing in, the, in the, my people's lives. And so God sent him to be the deliverer and they rejected him. Just again, like they would reject Jesus. And they wouldn't receive Moses until the second time. And then even after that in the wilderness, they just complained the whole time. And yet we see once again that he's giving them this, this opportunity to understand where he's coming from, that God is doing a work that it's outside the box of the temple and outside the law. And again, that's that, th that thread that he continues to weave throughout all these people that he continues to bring in, that God worked in the life of Moses in a different place, in a different time. That even after he was sent out, he didn't go back to the promised land where his forefathers were from. He went to Midian to serve his father-in-law for another 40 years that was nowhere close to the temple, nowhere close to the promised land. And it is there on Mount Sinai that God speaks to him, appears to him, gives him the law. The law wasn't even given in Jerusalem or at the temple. It was given somewhere else. And again, this is that thread that he continues to bring on to the Sanhedrin. God works outside the box. He works outside of religion because these religious leaders had become so inner, in, 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 inbred, if you will, or, or, or were growing inward that they weren't allowing anything new to come their way. And yet they all knew the scriptures that God would send someone, that he would, he, he would send someone just like Moses, as we'll see in verse 30, 37 on. Again, again, just kind of touching base. I'm moving a little quicker here because I got to. But again, he, he, he's reminding them, man, this guy brought signs and wonders, and that's what, that's what he was being you know, accused of doing also because they, that's why they were arguing with Stephen because he was doing signs and wonders as we learned a few weeks ago. But verse 37, it says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. 
This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles, the law to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected and their and in their hearts, they turned uh, back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idols, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, which would be Amos, verse uh, 42. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the, in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Remphan, images which you made to worship and to carry you beyond the uh, beyond Babylon and so now he's reminding them that this one that they had rejected that the council had put to death was that prophet that Moses had spoken about that God would send it was Jesus who, who, who would be raised up that they were supposed to listen and just like they rejected Moses they rejected Jesus they turned their hearts back to Egypt, the children of Israel did. And so he's reminding them that God spoke to them outside the box. He spoke to them in Mount Sinai, gave him all, all the covenant, gave him all the, the law because that was outside. And yet they rejected him and they turned and they began to serve other idols. When they asked Aaron, hey, we don't know what happened to Moses. You make us a God. And they began to worship the creation of their own hands. Now, now he's starting to not just talk about the law, but now he's focusing a little bit more on the temple as well. Because the temple, wherever it was at, he probably pointed, you're worshiping this temple. This is what you're looking at because man had built that. Oh, it was under the instructions of God for sure. But I could almost guarantee you that these guys, they had turned their heart away from God and they had turned it unto other things. Things that could not speak. The temple was there, but it wasn't living. It's like worshiping this building. Who would worship this building? Um, but the fact is that that's what they were doing. The temple had become so important to him, it had become an idol. And so now he's hitting them saying, your hearts are in the wrong place. They're not serving God. They're not, you, you, you're worshiping the law. You're worshiping the temple. You're worshiping this place. And it's interesting because here they are in this place and the prophets had, had, had already spoken to them. You're worshiping things that are made of hands. And I can almost guarantee you, he's pointing to the, to the temple wherever they were at, going, that's, what your heart, that's where your heart is at. You have missed it. You have missed the prophet that God had sent to Israel by rejecting Jesus, and now you're worshiping the, the works of your own hands. In verse 44, it says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. As he appointed, instructed Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen, which our fathers, having received, 
it to, uh, in turn also brought with, jo uh, with Joshua into the land of, uh, into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the house or for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet said, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will, the, will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has, the, has my hands not made all these things? And so now... He, he, he focuses on Joshua, David, and Solomon. Three more witnesses that, that, that these guys are familiar with, saying, all of a sudden, you guys are worshiping things that are made of hands. You are worshiping things that will not last forever because the law was not, last, was not made to last forever. Jesus was. It pointed towards Jesus, and they've rejected all of these things. Everything that he talks about here, the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness was a temporal dwelling place. It was a place where God would meet them, but God was not going to live in the tabernacle. And when he raised up David, and David wanted to build God a house... He's going, I, I don't dwell in houses. And yet they built, they built the temple so that God would meet them there. But God says, I don't dwell in houses. There's nothing that can contain me. And yet the religious leaders of the day are trying to put him in this box to say, no, this is how you work. You cannot work outside of this box. And that is what Stephen continues to hone in, continues to go after, continues to say, this is where, where we went wrong, that we're worshiping the temple, we're worshiping the law, we're worshiping this place. And God works outside of these things because God cannot be held down by one place or one law. And so in verse 55, he's basically done with all the history and now he points at the Sanhedrin. Now he looks to them and he addresses them personally. After using all these kinds of words that would have touched their hearts, reminding them that God does not work in a box. He works outside of the box. And he looks to them and he says this, and it's powerful. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As, our, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did our fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it pretty bold of this guy who's called to serve tables but as we've learned from the scriptures Stephen has been full of the Holy Spirit he's been filled to overflowing he has this newfound faith and this newfound boldness that these people that are sitting in front of him will not scare him in any way he will stand boldly before them and proclaim the truth. And he calls them stiff-necked and, and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. And this is where they're, they're now beginning to get hotter than ever. 
Man, you will not bow down to God. You're stiff-necked. That's who you are. Circumcision was everything to them. They said, you can have physical circumcision, but your heart and your ears are not circumcised. They're not pure. They're full of flesh. That's what he is telling them at this moment. You resist the Holy Spirit. They had resisted the wisdom that Stephen had, and now they're resisting the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is wanting to to do a work in them, and they are fighting it. And this is the work that God was wanting to do in the Jewish people when he sent Jesus to remind them, hey, this new covenant is coming. The old is done away. I am the new. He had sent, he had sent John the Baptist to remind them of it because Malachi spoke all about it. Jesus comes on the scene and they reject him so much so that they crucify him and he tells them, you become the betrayers, the murderers. Man, he's not backing down, not one bit. But you see, he's not afraid. He's not afraid of the people. He's not, he's, he's not afraid of death. He could care less of what will happen to him, but he is going to tell them the truth. Which one of the prophets did your fathers? And it's interesting because in the beginning he says, Our fathers. Now he's saying, Your fathers. The people that you held up. Because all these people that he has just mentioned, the people that they said they revered, they did not revere because if they would have revered, they would have revered Jesus when he came on the scene. Remember when, when they're saying, our father's Abraham, Jesus saying, if your father was Abraham, you would love me. But these guys, they talked a big game, but they had nothing. Which of your fathers, he says, did not persecute the prophets? Because all of them, and and even some of them that that he's mentioned, but the people that were around them, they were disobedient. They came against them. They they murmured. They they complained. They did all of these things. He says, you're in the same place. You revere this temple, and yet you don't revere the temple of God or or the, the fact that God wants to dwell in the temple. You have now become the temple of God through the Holy Spirit, but you resist Him because He wants to dwell in you. No house can, can house God, but he wants to live inside of his creation. But you resist him. You revere the law, but you have not kept it. And so here at the end, in verse 40, uh, 54 to the end of the chapter, it says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed, him at, gnashed at him with, his te- with their teeth. But he being filled, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen. As he was calling on God and saying, Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
when you picture the setting, when you picture this young man who was standing before the, the, this council, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, and he's calling them out for their disobedience. They're call, he's calling them out because they have, they have rejected the Christ. He is calling them out because as much as you revere this temple, you have nothing to do with this temple. It's empty, just like you. They revered the law, and yet they could not live by the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to give them the law of Christ, which is love, and they were rejecting it all. And yet, here we have this young man who begins to tell them all these things, and it says that they were cut to the heart. And unlike the first time that we hear that term, when Peter preached the message where they were cut to the heart, they say, what, what must we do to be saved? <laughs> these guys are putting their hands over their ears. We can't hear it no more. They're shouting with a loud voice. It says that they, 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 they came after him in one accord. They ran at him. You could almost see them. these guys just jumping over, over the, the, the table that they're sitting at, going, let's get rid of this guy. Guys, this is, this is hardcore what's happening right here. It is cutting them to the heart. And instead of saying, what must I do, Lord? They're getting mad. They're getting angry. They're getting violent. There's this malice growing within them that now they just want to kill the guy. And isn't that interesting when the Holy Spirit touches our heart? We can go either one, one of those ways. We can ask God, Lord, what must I do? Or we get upset because he chastens us. <laughs> and we see this young man who is full of the Holy Spirit who gazed up to heaven. And he uses the same words as, as, as what he, or the same phrase as when he used for Abraham. And the glory of the Lord appeared to him. And he turns around and he says, the glory of the Lord is right there. I could see it. I could taste it. Not realizing that when he started this, he's talking about Abraham and the glory of the Lord that he would be experiencing the, the glory of the Lord soon. And I love the fact that, again, as they rush after him, as they take him out to begin to stone him, and apparently stoning takes a lot of you know, movement because they take their coats off so they can throw a good stone. And they lay them at this young man named Saul. We're going to be seeing Saul a lot more. I could guarantee you that Saul never forgot that time. He was approving of the death of this young man, Stephen. And I could guarantee you this haunted him for the rest of his life. Because he was there. He was there. And we see this young man being taken out. And as he is being taken out, and I love the fact that he, he talks about Jesus standing. Usually we, talk, we see Jesus sitting. But now he is standing. In one sense to avenge him. To say, I will protect you. In another sense to say, come on in. I'm ready for you. God's ready. He's standing. And we lo I love the fact that it is so reminiscent as we're going to partake in communion in just a little bit. What we see here is so reminiscent of what we see Jesus on the cross with. When they are coming after him, when they are ready to kill him, he utters the words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as they are stoning Stephen, just a regular old guy who is serving tables, has that same kind of heart that Jesus has. As they are stoning him, as he has taken a few already, 
saying, Lord, don't lay this on their hearts. Don't lay this in their lives. Guys, what are the, that's the ultimate that God requires of us. That when people are coming against us for the gospel, when people are coming against us because of who Jesus is in our lives, that we would be like Jesus on the cross saying, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That we would be like Stephen, just a regular old guy, just like you and I. That in the moment when all of this is coming down, that we would be able to say to God, Lord, don't hold this against them. That's the ultimate. And so this morning, we get to partake in communion. We get to remember what Jesus did on our behalf. And I love the fact that, again, when we look at this portion of Scripture, as it finishes it off, as He has told these guys what's going on, that they've tried to keep God in a box, yet Jesus, God sends Jesus who is totally out of the box. He's doing things that these guys are not comprehending because He's trying to tell them when He came, I don't work within your little religion. I'm going beyond the religion. And I love the fact that what happens here is going to propel the church to go out because the church, it's not about one place. It's not about one law. It's about going. We don't revere the law like these guys revered it. Oh, we respect it. But the law of Christ is what? Love. <laughs> and that's not to be held in. That's to be going out. It just, we just don't experience the love of Christ here in this place. But then again, we shouldn't even revere this place. It's just a building. It becomes a church when you show up. And so what he's telling us here is that my word, my law, is not, is, is not restrained to one place. You don't worship me in one place. And so because of this, the gospel is going to go out. And we remember that even in, a, in our time of communion, remembering what Jesus did. And he did that on our behalf so that we can go out. Amen? Amen. Now, again, for so, those of you who might be new, we're, we're going to have the worship, time, uh, the worship team come up. They're going to sing a couple of songs at your leisure. You come up and go back and you worship. You worship and you thank God for what he has done on the cross on your behalf and our behalf. And so at your leisure, we're going to have like three songs. And so you just worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look to you and we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for the promises. We thank you, Lord God, for this portion of Scripture, Lord God. Even though it was a lot of reading, Lord, man, Lord, you just showed us time and time again that you don't work inside of a box. You're always outside of a box. You've always been outside the box, Lord God. And I pray that you would forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have put Jesus in a box, the times that we have put the Holy Spirit in a box and thought that that's the only way he could work. Father, forgive us for that, Lord. Lord, as you've reminded us of that right now, I pray that, Lord, as we partake in communion, that, Lord, we would thank you for doing things that were not religious, that we're doing things that, that, that just buck the system because of the new covenant that you were bringing in. I pray, God, that we would ne never get stuck in religion. I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, even as we change things up for communion, that we wouldn't do communion in a box. And that's the only way we have to do it. I pray, God, that even this time, it would be different for us, Lord, as we have this intimate time with you and with our family that, God, you would do a mighty and awesome work in our lives right now, even as we partake in communion. We do love you, Lord. We do thank you for your precious promises. In Jesus' name, amen. For you parents.